I'm going to, the sermon this morning is called A Little Bitty Minnow and a Big Flash Flood. A Little Bitty Minnow and a Big Flash Flood. And uh, the text that I'm going to read is packed halfway into the message. So I want to pray for the message right here up front. And I'd like at least a couple of dozen people to be interceding for me as the message goes forward. Could you would just raise your hand if you'll be praying as the message goes out. Pray that my voice stays strong enough to get through this one. All right, thanks. Let's talk to God. Lord, uh, and mornings like this one right now, I uh, just am delighted and find reassurance in your promise that when we are weak, then you are strong. And uh, it doesn't matter how uh, my voice is, God, I, 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 we pray that you use it to bring forth this message to impact our lives. God, there is a, a monster stronghold that's part of the matrix of this culture that has got, I believe, almost all of us to some degree, myself very much included. And God, we need your wisdom, and we need your spirit, and we need your anointing uh, to know, Lord, how to get out of this bondage because it sucks more life out of us than we possibly imagine. So, Lord God, be present here. Lord God, let your word go forward in authority and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. I'm going to back into this message in a little bit of an odd way. Um, on occasion, I tip my hat. If you've been around here for any length of time, there are a few times where I indulge myself and uh, let go of some of my weirdness. Uh, I do it when I talk about Nash's equilibrium or complex adaptive systems or chaos theory and things like that. And, and you guys are so gracious to indulge me like this. My small group indulges me. I'm allowed to about once a month bring this stuff up. Um, but this morning, I want to uh, kind of illustrate something by, I'll just let you in on a little bit more of my weirdness. Now, you, 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 if the next three minutes it might sound like I'm speaking in tongues, be okay with that. Uh, getting, understanding what I'm talking about is not the point that I'm trying to make here. You'll see the point I'm trying to make here in a minute. But here's the bottom line. About two years ago, I discovered a flaw, or at least a weakness, a prejudice in Aristotle's square of opposition. See, it's a, <clears throat> come on, bring it on. It's really the foundation of uh, Western logic. And um, I, I, I began to work with this, especially as it concerns my counterfactuals. And I found that if you change the square into a triangle of contrary relationships, you avoid the weaknesses, the flaws, and the prejudice of the uh, um, uh, Aristotle's square of opposition by turning into a triangle of contrary relationships. The prejudice I'm referring to is this. Throughout Western history, there's been this tendency towards determinism and an inability to articulate on a logical basis the ontological nature of possibilities, which is why we see them as strictly epistemological realities. So I got this triangle going here. A friend of mine from Lebanon pointed out that if you work out the logical relationships, you develop a triangle within a triangle. And I began to play with that triangle within a triangle and found out that if you just broaden it a little bit, you turn it into a, a star, a six-sided star, a hexagram, a star of David, which kind of freaked me out because Janice had told me about six months earlier that God had told her to tell me to pay attention to the star of David. I know something about it, and I didn't know what she was talking about. I thought she was maybe a little cuckoo, had too much NyQuil, and, uh, you know, but turns out, yeah, now I'm getting pretty interested in this. And I notice that the, uh, the, the, the corners of the, the, all the points of this star, if you work them out, get this, they have subaltern relationships, which forms, if you connect them, a hexagon. This hexagon 
covers all possible logical relationships, contrary, subcontrary, subaltern, and contradictory relationships. You can plug any formula in there and find immediately the equation, uh, how it works out. And the beautiful thing about it is it's not prejudiced against the, uh, uh, um, uh, possibilities. Rather, it allows for the indeterminacy of the future. Not only that, but it's got five proportions, Fibonacci sequences all over the place. It's got a fractal quality that's gorgeous. Chelsea Diarman uh, is inventing this new hexagonic art on the basis of this hexagon. Somebody say amen. amen. Now, no, here's the thing. Oh, I'm just getting warmed up. You see, I, I, th this really is, I, I'm, I'm serious about it. I was ver I'm very excited about this thing. I and two friends have been working on all sorts of formulas uh, on the basis of this solving. It solves a multitude of logical problems. And we've now submitted it to some uh, professional logicians to see what they think about it. And so far, it's, it, it's kind of getting interesting. So I was really manic about this, sitting in caribou coffee about two months ago. So I get in these manic drives where I go a couple weeks and three hours sleep, and I, 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 I get kind of blitzed. So I'm sitting in, the, in caribou coffee, and I, I'm working on a lot of these formulas. Uh, I got a no, a notes all over the place. I, I'm strung out on coffee. I've been three weeks. Notes that look kind of like this. I got, I'm strung out on coffee. I've been going three weeks like this. I'm sitting in caribou. I got notes all around me. Paul Eddy walks in because he's got to meet somebody there, and he looks at me. He looks at some of the notes that I've got, and he looks at you know, I haven't touched my hair for a week. I haven't taken a bath for a week. I haven't shaved for a week. But I don't notice it because I'm in the hexagon. And so he looks at these notes and he says, Greg, are you doing all right? And, and I start to explain to him the beauty of the hexagon, the symmetrical relationships, the five proportions and things of this sort. And he, he's starting to really get worried about me. And at one point he starts shaking his head and he goes, it's a beautiful mind. Implying that I'm John Nash kind of screwed up in the head and stuff. So I'm explaining this to him, and I start to laugh, and I make a couple of mistakes, got to go back and correct it, which makes me sound even a little bit more loony. So I'm, I'm laughing. I laugh to the point of tears. I'm laughing and crying, trying to explain this to him. Janice walks in, and she sees this thing, and she gets really worried, and she goes, Greg, are, are, are you getting enough sleep? Which makes me laugh even harder, and I'm having a meltdown in the middle, caribou coffee, surrounded by those weird-looking notes like that, all this esoteric writing, laughing, crying, trying to insist that there's a five proportion in the hexagon, and all of a sudden it occurs to me as I look around, that I'm certifiably nuts. I, I look around, and, and I, got, I, I hadn't cut my hair for a while. I had this bushy hair, and, and I'm talking about triangles and hexagons and contrary. And, and all, it's like a, a light goes on. It's like Bruce Willis in The Sixth Sense when all of a sudden you realize you're dead. Do you ever, ever have like reframing moments like that where all of a sudden the light goes on? And it's like, oh my gosh. I, now, I'm not admitting that I am crazy. I'm just admitting that I looked crazy, all right? I'm not... I'm not but it's like, this, okay, I, I'll grant you this, I do look weird. Now, what I want to do this morning, and I'm really kind of starting a, a series here on this, uh, I, I want a light to go on for us. A light that really gets us to wake up to the reality that our lives are absolutely nuts. As we're living them right now, we're crazy, we're insane. Our lives are like the helter-skelter scribblings of the notepads I had surrounding me on that uh, caribou morning. Do you ever feel like you're running around like a chicken with his head cut off? Yeah, I got some emails on that one. You don't know, you don't care about the hexagon, but yeah, I got your attention now. You feel like, do you ever say to yourself and say to a spouse, is this how life was supposed to be lived? This can't be how life was supposed to be lived. You know, you're on a frantic pace and you're just trying to lift from one moment to the other. The, 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 the pre do you ever look at the dog and, and admire it? Is it? You are so lucky, you canine. You just sit around, go to the bathroom once in a while, eat, and wait till I pet you. What a life. <laughs> Our lives, as we're living them as Americans these days, are crazy. 
A typical day might look something like this. And this will land with, with most of us, I think. The alarm goes off and it jars you out of a comatose sleep because uh, you only got four hours sleep that night and only three hours the night before that and you need nine, but you never get it. So you flop out of bed and you're going to say your five, ten-minute semi-comatose prayer. But in the fogginess of your brain, you recall that you had hit that snooze button three times, so you're running 15 minutes late. So you don't have time to pray, which makes you feel a little bit guilty, which already is adding some stress to your life. But you go to the bathroom, brush your teeth, try to put on, you know, you look in the mirror, realize you're going to have a bad hair day because of the way you slept, and there's not much you can do about that. But you try to put on some makeup, but you're so tired you can't see straight. So you go downstairs and get some coffee. Try to make the coffee pot work. It's one of those new ones because you broke the one from a couple weeks ago, and you haven't really figured out how to use this one. After six minutes, you're so frustrated, you give up on the thing. And d d despite the fact that you hate it, you drink instant coffee. Because at least it gives you a jolt of artificial energy. So you got your coffee, you're going upstairs, now you're going to put on your makeup, but your husband's in the bathroom, he's taking a shower, and everybody knows you can't put up makeup in the steamy bathrooms. I know about these kind of things, my guy. <laughs> Which reminds you that, that your husband's got to catch a plane in three hours, uh, or in an hour to take a three-day business trip, and that means it's your turn to get the two kids up and off to school. So you go get Johnny up, and he's grumpy as he usually is. You bring him downstairs, you give him some cereal, and now you want to go back up and try to put the makeup on, but he spills the milk all over, his, all over his homework, and he's having a fit, and he's all, you know, nasty. And you finally clean the whole thing up, get him out just in time to catch the bus. Go back upstairs. Finally, the bathroom's open. You go in there, and you get one eye done, but now you're here, your husband helping a meltdown because he can't find his brown socks and Mickey Mouse uh, tie and, and his blue suede shoes. And, and so you got to help him pack. Why are men so incompetent? I don't know. But um, you, 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 know, you, you find this stuff, you get him dressed, you get him all done, you kiss him as he's going out the doors, and now he can't find his keys. At that point, you say, sorry, Jack, but i got other things to do. One of these days, you got to learn what it's like to live without a mother. And so you go back upstairs. Now you guys are fighting. Now you guys are fighting, and that adds tension to your life, and you hate leaving on a note like this, but what are you going to do? So you go up, now you're going to put your makeup on, but you realize that you're so far behind, you don't have time to do that. You'll have to do that in the car. So you get Susie up, your little daughter up, got to drive her to the daycare in the rush hour traffic. You got a coffee in one hand, you got your eyeliner in the other, and thank God you don't smoke. So you get in the car, <laughs> fight the rush hour traffic. Things are going real well. You almost got the other eye done when the, uh, when the cell phone goes off and gives you one of those cell phone seizures. You know how that is. Which makes you poke your eye with your eyeliner and it screws up the makeup. You get on the phone and it's your insurance agent telling you that if you don't get a payment in today, uh, they're going to drop your insurance, insurance because you're three months behind. Which is an interesting question because you don't have the money to send it in today, but you have to worry about that later. You've got other things to worry about right now. You drop Susie off at the daycare and the people chuckle at you because you've got a bloodshot eye and makeup uh, all, all screwed up. You leave that, fight the rush hour again, get to work, put in eight hours on the verge of a nervous breakdown with 1,017 different interruptions, doing superhuman work. That's way too much to ask of anyone, but your boss is grumpy because she got dumped by her boyfriend four months earlier and she's taken out on everybody. Put in your eight hours, get off, go pick up Susie from the daycare, drive home. She's cranky because she didn't get enough sleep and Johnny hit her. And besides, she starts to throw a fit because you won't stop at the Dairy Queen and you're the meanest mother in the world and she vows she's going to hate you for life, which also adds to your stress. You get home. Johnny's been there for two hours already, and he's upset because his video game's not working. He wants you to fix it, but you don't have time to fix it. So he starts throwing a fit, and they, he starts fighting with Susie. And as you're doing this, you remember, you've got to drive him to a basketball practice in 30 minutes. Or maybe it's soccer, or maybe it's debate, or maybe it's youth. You don't know. He does something every night of the week. That's hard to keep him straight. So you go to the schedule. You're trying to figure out the schedule while the kids are fighting. You put supper on because, you know, you've got to eat real quick. There's only a chance you got. And then your mother-in-law calls. While you're burning the supper, the kids are fighting, you're trying to look at the schedule, and she's mad as a hornet because you forgot her birthday yesterday. At that point, you say, 
Mom, I'm a little bitty minnow in a little bitty bitty minnow in a big flash flood. My life's a pressure cooker and I'm sweating blood. You know, my plate's all full. Something's got to give because this ain't the way people are supposed to live. And she says, I'm down with you, girl. And that's the first positive thing that's happened that day. Is that not sort of true about our life? You bet it's true. We're cracking up, folks. It's, it, it, it's insanity for a lot of us. 80%, I'm going to give you some statistics here. 80% of Americans say they would like to significantly reduce the stress level in their life. But less than 1% in each, any given year actually does anything to do that. And the stress is going up and up and up. Eric, uh, or Alvin Toffer, uh, in 1980, noticed the rising level of, of stress. He, he, he thought it was just an epidemic. And he says this, it's, it seems like a, a, a bomb has gone off in our communal psychosphere. In his book, The Third Wave, published in 1980, a bomb has gone off. Something's changed here. Historically, people have not felt this kind of stress. They had worries and concerns, of course, but they didn't live in this kind of frantic rat race sort of pace. Things have gotten a lot worse since 1980. Here's a couple of examples. Downtime has decreased for most people almost in half. Our work week has increased seven hours. There's almost twice as many decisions that you've got to make today as compared to what we made in 1980. Last night after the message, I went out to try to get some throat lozenges. Somebody recommended a certain kind of throat lozenger, gave me one, and it worked pretty well, so I went out to get a throat lozenger. Went to the pharmacy right over there. I cannot believe how many different kind of cough drops they've got. Throat lozenges, it's amazing. 20 trillion of them, and they didn't have the brand that this guy recommended I get. Try buying yogurt sometime. It's ridiculous. There used to be one yogurt back in the good old days. I went to buy a camera for my daughter for Christmas, a, a video camera. You know, last time I bought a video camera, it was like you know, one of those kinds of carry like this. And there's just one of them on the market. Now you go and they got 17 zillion kinds with all these options. Who can understand this stuff? I feel like I'm walking in the future world trying to buy a camera. It's, it's all these decisions. And we like opportunities, we like decisions, but you know what? Uh, 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 it, it, it's time-consuming and it's stress-adding. The rate of change has basically doubled since 1980. Men change their jobs every 5.8 years. Women change uh, every 7.6 years, and that's increasing. There's a technology explosion since 1980, and we thought we were in a technology explosion in 1980. The average American has to learn how to operate 20,000 pieces of technology which is really bad news for me because I can't operate one of them. Uh, emails become, uh, became popular in the early 1990s, and by 1996, it was more voluminous than regular mail. And regular mail is going through the ceiling. The pace of that is going up. The average American, uh, as, of la or as of 1990 or, at or 2002, uh, has to go through 43 pounds of junk mail each year. At this pace, and it's probably going to get worse before it gets better, we'll spend a year of our life going through junk mail. That makes me mad. There's no time, there's no margins, and the result of it is that we're cracking up. You know, when you put rats under stress, we know this from scientific experiments, rats go nuts on each other. They have nervous breakdowns. They start eating one another. Parents start eating their young uh, with rats when, when you put them under enough stress. And something, we're not rats, I hope, but something like that begins to happen with us. Healthcare has gone up 200% since 1985. Spending on, health, uh, on mental health. Uh, there's 10 times as many therapists as there were in, 1980, in 1980. Uh, one out of four adults will have to see a therapist in the next five years. 
Four out of five Americans don't sleep enough. We have chronic fatigue. We don't wake up naturally. Something uh, like an alarm clock has to wake us up, and we don't get enough sleep. Few Americans know their neighbors or have intimate relationships with anyone outside their family. And for many Americans, we don't have intimate relationships inside our family because intimate relationships take time, and we don't have time. Kids are cracking up. Many believe that this stress is... Uh, among those who are more fragile, you start to see the signs of a crack among those who are the most fragile. And that tends to be elderly or it tends to be those who just can't take much stress to sensitive people, but especially kids. And the rate of juvenile crime has, as you all know, gone up uh, uh, exponentially since the early 1980s. Uh, you know, it used to be in, in, in the 60s and 70s, the greatest discipline problem in schools was chewing gum, swearing, and occasional really bad kids smoking a cigarette and girls wearing too short of miniskirts. Nowadays, they got metal detectors to keep the kids from being, bringing in their bazookas and Uzis. I mean, uh, things have really changed. Things are, are, are not going in the right direction. This is supposed to be the good life. What happened to it? All these uh, time-saving, uh, leisure things that we're supposed to have. What happened to that? I thought this was all supposed to make us happier. What happened to that? In the name of progress, it seems like we've digressed. In the name of the good life, it seems like we've somehow acquired the stressed-out life. In the name of uh, having a plethora of time-saving machines, what we've got is a ton of time-sucking machines. Here's what one commentator said, Jeremy Rifkin, in his book, Te 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 Technological Chance. He says, The high-tech world of clocks and schedules, computers and programs was supposed to free us from the life of toil and deprivation. Yet with each passing day, the human race becomes more enslaved, exploited, and victimized. Think about that. Even better is E.F. Schumacher, he's a British economist. He says, I think I should not go far wrong to assert that the amount of genuine leisure, I love this quote, the amount of genuine leisure available in a society is generally in inverse proportion to the amount of labor-saving machinery it employs. It's not working. What's wrong with our life? This, in fact, is not how life was meant to be lived. And yet, try to get out of it. It's very difficult. It seems like it's got us. What is, is supposed to give here? Now, what I want to be doing the rest of this message and then in uh, the next couple weeks as I, as I go on this series is asking the biblical question. You know, uh, uh, is our life sane? It's a very biblical question. Are, are we, in fact, seeking first the kingdom of God? What can we do to begin to, in very practical terms, bring some sanity to our helter-skelter life? I want us to wake up, to step outside of our culture, and to see how crazy our culture is, and then to begin to ask, what can we uh, do about this? I want to tell you up front that uh, I am particularly in this message not speaking from an arrived position. Anybody who knows me well knows that my schedule is probably more insane than most of yours. If I told you what I've done in the last week, uh, I, you'd be impressed <laughs> or mad. I don't know. But uh, uh, this, I'm on a learning curve with the rest of us here. And I, I have been devouring a couple of, you know, some books on this topic. The best one I found is by Dr. Rich Swenson, his book Margins, and also his book Overload. And now they got to have it as a two-volume work. You can get it at Northwestern Bookstore. We carry the book Margins here in our bookstore. Um, but uh, I, I'm on a learning curve with all of us. And I say that because uh, those who know me, I don't want them to be thinking I'm a hypocrite uh, when I'm preaching this message about how we need to de-stress our lives. Uh, so I'm going to tell everyone up front, I'm a hypocrite. And now let's go on and hear what the Word of God has to say about this. All right. I'm going to read a passage from the book of Matthew. A fascinating passage. The kind of thing that you don't notice all the time. But it's, uh, 
It's powerful. Matthew chapter 8. I'll read verses 14 through 18 and 23 through 24. And now I'm breaking the first rule of public speaking. Never talk with something in your mouth. Too bad. <laughs> Deal with it. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were possessed with demons. He cast out the spirits with the word and cured all the sick. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took our infirmities and bore our, sick, our, our diseases. So far so good. Now look at this. Now when Jesus saw great crowds around him, he got really excited. No. He gave orders to go over to the other side, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Jesus was the first one on the boat. A windstorm arose on the sea so great that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but Jesus was sound asleep. This is an amazing thing, amazing thing. Jesus, one thing about Jesus, he played hard, or he worked hard, he played hard, he slept hard. But he did work hard. He ministered hard. Uh, and that's a good thing. The Bible is for hard work. There's nothing wrong with that. The, four, the, the Bible says we are to keep our hands busy. There's nothing wrong with that. The Bible is uniformly against laziness, sloth, mediocrity. So whatever else I'm going to be saying in this series, don't hear me as saying that we're supposed to become a bunch of couch potatoes. No, that's not the case. We're supposed to be hardworking people, hard-ministering people. But we're also supposed to be hard-playing people and hard-sleeping people. Jesus knew his limitations. He was the Son of God, God on earth. But he was also a real, full human being, and human beings have limitations. And precisely because he was a perfect human being, a sinless human being, he knew those limitations. There is a sin of sloth, but there is also a sin of overextending yourself. You could call it pride, you could call it hubris, you could call it coveting, but the sin of overextending yourself, thinking you, you don't have any limitations. As a perfect human being, Jesus knew his limitations. And so here he is, he's ministering to these people. And then apparently word's getting out because the crowd's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And Jesus looks up and sees this crowd, and he says, we're closing up shop right now. Head to the other side. Run away! Run away! He heads on the boat. The disciples are behind him. No doubt the disciples are thinking, thinking something like this. Jesus, come on. You came down here to earth to minister to people, to meet all their needs, and, and, and to grow the kingdom. And here we got this great crowd. Maybe it was an unprecedented crowd. They've come so far to see you. You can't disappoint them. You can't. You, you, this is an opportunity here. We could really make a splash here. But Jesus says, done. And he gets on the boat. He's the first one there. The disciples say, I guess he's serious. Because he already gave them the orders to do it. They didn't do it. So he gets on the boat, says, are you coming or not? They get on the boat with him, and they head out. Now, I want us to enter into this really fully. Lest you think it was easy to do that. Uh, put yourself in the position of the mother who's got a daughter, five-year-old daughter who's very, very sick, maybe close to death. And she walks seven miles because she heard about this wonder worker named Jesus. And she gets up there waiting in line, trying to, you know, and just as she gets up there, Jesus says, done. I got, I, I got to go over the other side. It would be hard for Jesus to do that. It certainly would be 
to say disappointing is the understatement of the century, but it'd be disappointing for this woman. I can imagine a lot of criticisms coming out of this. Oh, he says he's a son of God. He's supposed to be an all-holy man. What about that unfathomable love? Huh? He's supposed to bear our infirmities and heal our diseases, but he didn't heal my diseases. He didn't have time for the little guy. He didn't have time for me. And I imagine there's a lot of criticism of Jesus at this point. Maybe even among his disciples. How are you going to save the world on this kind of schedule? But Jesus says, done. I know my limitations. I have got to sleep. So he gets on the boat. And he falls asleep before they get to the other side. And a storm's brewing. You know how fast asleep Jesus was? Because it says that despite the windstorm, the disciples thought the boat was going to get capsized. But Jesus is sound asleep. Part of that was no doubt exhaustion. Because when you work hard, you sleep hard. But part of it also was the fact, it tells me this, that Jesus had a clear conscience. He wasn't going off on that boat feeling bad about himself, feeling like he didn't do enough for the world, feeling like he should have just done one more. If only I could have, maybe I should have. He didn't have the face of that sick child on his, uh, on his mind when he went to sleep. You don't sleep that hard if you don't have a, have a, have a clear conscience. It tells us that the limitations that we have are real and they cannot be ignored. It tells us this. That the key to sanity, following the example of Jesus, the key to sanity, the key to having a sound family, the key to ha having a sound mind, the key to having a sound relationship with God, the key to ha having a sound relationship with yourself is in having clear-cut boundaries, knowing when to say no and saying no, not being sucked into the needs of other people. When you've done all that you can do, you've got to know your limitations. This is, I, I believe, a ministerial hazard, a, a hazard, a occupational hazard for pastors. There's always more you could do, always more you could do. But because you could do it, does that mean that you should do it? A lot of pastors have trouble with that distinction. If you wonder why a lot of pastors' kids grow up hating church and why they have, uh, uh, go into divorces and sometimes fall into affairs or burn out and implode on themselves, I submit to you it's, it's this. Because given two things, you got a family that's on the verge of, of uh, completely blowing the sky high, or you can spend a nice, relaxing evening with your family. It always seems more righteous to give your time to the family that's in crisis. And once in a while, that's fine. But if that becomes your mode of operation, you're heading for a disaster. It always seems like it's the more righteous thing to, to address the kid who's, who's on drugs and strung out and going to jail than it does to spend the, the evening with, with, with your son. How guilty would you feel spending a nice relaxing evening with your nice healthy family while this kid's going to prison? And once in a while, of course you've got to do stuff like that, but if that's your mode of operation, you're heading for disaster. There's something to say that some people have a savior complex. But I submit to you, it's, we just saw how the, what the savior's complex was, and it wasn't this. This is a hyper-savior complex, where you think you can do more than you can actually do. You've got to have boundaries. But it doesn't just apply to pastors. It applies to all of us. There's always more we could do. We have so many options, so many opportunities in this culture. There's always more we could do, but because we could do it, even though it's good, should we do it? Yes, you could take that new job. It'd be an incredible raise. Uh, but it would also require more time, and you'll be away from the house more, and it's going to bring more stress on your life. Yes, it would get you the cabin that you wanted, and that could you know, give a, provide a getaway for you and your family and your friends. But you could do it, but should you do it? Or you could take that moonlighting job. It wouldn't be that hard. It'd just be three nights a week. But see, there's always a cost, and there's always added stress. And so we got to ask, because we could do it, does that mean that we should do it? And the decisive variable there is this. 
How big are your margins? How big is the boundary between you and absolute exhaustion? How close to the end are you? Factor in your finitude, your limitations, the, the boundaries that you need. Johnny could play basketball. He could play soccer. He could be the best debater in the world if you gave him a chance. Maybe he'd be a football star. Maybe he'd be, ballet, be a ballet star or a wrestler. Who knows what? Maybe he'd be the best trumpeter in the world if you gave him the opportunity to play trumpet. But because you could offer him all those things, should you offer him all those things? There's a new kind of guilt that a lot of parents have in our culture. First time in history, I think. Well, you feel guilty if you don't offer your kids every possibility for every possible thing. So you run your kid crazy going from this, that, and the other thing in the name of loving your kid and giving him all these opportunities. But the one thing you're not giving him is the thing he needs most of all, and that's time with you. Time just hanging out. Just, just getting to know him and him getting to know you and talking and playing and helping him with his homework and things of that sort. Time to be loved. Developing a deep relationship. It's a new sort of thing that, that parents wrestle with. We're caught in a matrix of busyness. Little bitty minnows in a big flash flood. We call it progress, but what we are are rats on a treadmill. And, and, and we, we, we get a, just enough nibbles of that elusive cheese to keep us encouraged and running faster, but it never actually delivers. The more it promises us to save time, the less it actually saves time. If you're looking for an explanation for why you maybe have a perpetual anxiety, a, a kind of a, a pit in your stomach all the time, this could be it. If you're looking for an explanation for why it is that you don't have any friends and you don't know your neighbors at all and, you, and maybe you're not even close to your family, uh, why you don't have any real deep relationships, it's, it's, this may be it because those things take time and we don't have time. If you're looking for an explanation for why it is we can't ever seem to have time to really pray, at least not quality prayers, maybe semi-conscious prayers, why we don't have time to pray and just relax with God and hang out with God and, and get to know ourselves and maybe journal about ourselves and find some things out and just think thoughts. Well, why do we never have time to do that? Why we're not growing spiritually, it could be because of this. In fact, I think it probably is, has something to do at least with this matrix of our culture, the machinery of our culture that's grinding faster and faster and faster. David Zach said this. I love this quote. He says, these days we are hyper-living, skimming along on the surface of life. Hyper-living. Not living, we're hyper-living skimming along on the surface of life. I get a picture of a, have you ever seen these little water bug, water spiders? And they just scurry on top of the water. You know, uh, th that's how we live our life, helter-skelter. This, that, it's kind of frantic. It's skimming along on the surface of life, never getting deep with anything because depth always takes time. We don't have deep relationships. We don't have even a, often a deeper uh, knowledge of ourselves. Nothing about us is deep. Nothing about us is that qualitative because we're, our life is getting sucked out of us by this busyness machine, the machinery of our culture. And we always regret saying, well, I wish I could. I wish I had time. I wish I this. I wish I that. But we never seem to find it. We're little tiny bugs scurrying around on the surface of life. It's got to stop. It's got to stop. I hope you see how insane it is. Let the light go on like it did for me and Caribou there and see the craziness here. Now, I'm not exactly sure, uh, you know, I don't have all the answers on how to get out of this. Uh, but uh, this morning I'm going to end with three quick biblical principles, which if we keep in mind can at least help us appreciate the insanity of it, which will begin to motivate us to do something about it. Principle number one, we are finite. We are created finite, which means we're created with limitations. To be human is to be limited. There's only so much of you to go around, only so much time to go around, only so much energy to go around, only so much mental power to go around, and you have to live in that reality. In the Garden of Eden, it's interesting to me, 
But what, you, what was at the center of the garden was a boundary, a no trespassing sign. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was God's way of saying, tell you what, humans, you be human and I'll be God. You let me be the judge of the world. Your job is not to judge. Your job is just to love. It's a boundary. In fact, a lot of scholars argue that many of the Old Testament laws are about boundaries, keeping us in our proper domain, keeping us in our proper place. Now, sometimes Christians say things like this. Well, the Bible says, my Bible says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So yes, I will take on that 19th ministry. Yes, I will do We can't say no because the Bible says we're supposed to do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Okay, if you're going to have that philosophy, I tell you what, why don't you go to the top of the IDS building and jump off it saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Watch me fly. <laughs> and you thought I was nuts at caribou. Um, you wouldn't do that, would you? Of course not. That's misapplying the verse. You're a human being. Human beings can't fly, so the verse doesn't mean that you can fly. Okay, if it doesn't mean you can fly, what makes it think you can get by adequately in life without eating right? You can get by in life adequately without sleeping enough. You can get by in life uh, adequately uh, while adding stress upon stress upon stress factor. To do all things through Christ who strengthens me does not mean that you can stop being a human being. It does mean, clearly, that you can do all the things that God commands you to do through Christ who strengthens you. But it doesn't mean that you're Superman. We've got to live in the reality of our limitations, being very aware of them. Now, we all have different limitations. Uh, and we're all different. You can't, because somebody can get by on four hours sleep, doesn't mean you can get by on four hours sleep. We're all made different. Some people can take a lot of stress. Some people can't take that much stress at all. They're just more sensitive people. Uh, some people can get by on three, four hours sleep. I get by on... on on uh, usually five or six hours sleep, and when I get manic, I can go for a month at a time on three hours sleep. But there's a limitation to that. Now, my wife needs nine hours or ten hours sleep a night. If she goes a week without getting nine or ten, man, I don't want to be around her. I mean, it's, it, it's a, you know. So you, you got to know your own limitations. But sometimes it's those people who are just wired to be able to handle it who most are inclined to exceed it. And I'm one of those people. I can take a lot of stress. I live in a lot of stress. And you know what? I even like stress. I'm, I, am, I feel like most alive when there's a lot of stress, when there's decisions to be made, when there's stuff to be worked on, when there's a publisher, you know, uh, breathing down my, 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 my neck saying, where's that book you promised three months ago? And I, it, it, I get this creative juice going. And I, you know, I, I can take a lot of that. It drives other people around me crazy, but I, I like it. My problem is that I get addicted to it. Can anyone here say amen to that one? It, where, when, when you're not under stress, you're bored. You know, I, I get into this hyper-functional mode, and I come home, and it's, you know, I, all day long I've just been, you know, just solving things and, and dealing with stress, and, you know, I eat stress for breakfast. <laughs> I come home, and I still got, I, I can't find the off button, so I'm still, like, solving things. I'm like, okay, here's this, you know. <clears throat> Everything's on a time schedule. And you know how unromantic that is? Uh, you, you can't do family life like that, you see. So we got to know our limitations. we got to know what particular uh, issues that we're going to confront, whether it's the sleep or the stress or whatever. But we all are finite and we have limitations. Point number two, because of that, God commands us to rest. This is not an option. The uh, best example of this in the Bible is, is uh, the Sabbath. In Exodus 31, uh, the Lord says, Observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Whoever does any work on that day... It's going to be cut off from the people. You're going to be excommunicated. We're going to kick you out. Wow. God takes this rest seriously. Uh, and the fact that he commands it tells us that part of our fallenness 
is an inclination to not rest. Now, as with tithing, the Sabbath principle carries over into the New Testament, but not the law. Okay, so there's not this one-day regulation that's repeated in the New Testament. We don't find that. But the principle is still there. The Sabbath is built in the nature of the creation. You've got to have boundaries, clear-cut boundaries that, you, that are holy. The word holy means separate, set apart. We need those kind of boundaries to set us apart where you don't work, where you just have time with God, time with your family, time with yourself, time with your friends, where you just hang, where you just are a human being. When we don't have that, we slip into this utilitarian mode where we become functional machines and the whole, the whole essence of our life is about doing stuff, solving problems, going somewhere, doing this, that, and the other thing. But that's not being human. Being human is just to be. We do stuff, but it isn't the essence of who we are. There's got to be carved out time. Maybe the principle would be one-seventh of our life should be spent. One-seventh of our life should be spent doing really nothing. Just, but we're really doing something very important when we do nothing. Because now relationships can happen and we can talk to God and we can begin to grow. It's built into the nature of creation. It's not a negotiable thing. That's why God rested on the seventh day. He didn't need the rest. He wasn't tired like, oh, that was a hard job. No, he was, illust he was saying, this, this seventh day, I'm packing this in to the creation. It's a principle. After work, you've got to rest, got to hang, got to relax. That's what it is to be human. It's non-negotiable. Which leads to my third principle, and it's this. To rest, we must force margins. And in our culture, we have to force them. They have to come via fiat. They will not just happen. It takes intentionality. Uh, it takes resolve to bring margins, boundaries, parameters into your life. There's always pressure to erase them. Always pressure. Things that seem more important than your margin. Things like, as Jesus faced, this sick child held by a distraught mother. And yet, these are the non-negotiables. Uh, you will sink to a subhuman existence if these are ignored. Now, so we need, we need margins, we need boundaries. Where you put your boundaries will depend on your priorities. And where you put your priorities will depend on what your sense of your life is, what your mission in life is, what the vision is for your life. If we don't have a vision for our life, which is the problem of the majority of Americans, a sense of what am I created to do? Uh, what am I here for? If you don't have that, you will be helter-skelter. You'll be skimming along the surface of life like a water bug. We need a vision, a, a purpose uh, that is clear to us, which, which can then help us to put in uh, parameters. If we don't have that, we won't put the parameters in the right place if we put it on any place. And I assure you, the ones you put in place will not stay there. Because the pressure, the treadmill, the rat, the rat race of life will erode them. Our church has a vision statement. Most of you have heard it before. A lot of you know it by heart. It's to be a community of spiritually powered people who reflect God's love and advance God's kingdom in St. Paul and the surrounding area and to the world as the Lord leads, working hand in hand with other expressions of the body of Christ until all have reached fullness in Christ. Now, the reason we have this vision statement is this, because there's always more that we could do. There's, 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 uh, we get pulled in 17 million directions. Sometimes it feels like that much every day. People got this idea, that idea, this ministry, that ministry, whatever. Uh, and if you do that, you'll be running helter-skelter and you won't do anything qualitative. So we have a vision statement which, which tells us this. This is what God, we feel God's called us to do. And everything we do is going to be in the parameters of this vision statement. 
I'm preaching this sermon right now because part of that vision statement is that we covenant to be a, a, a community of spiritually empowered people. And you can't be spiritually empowered if you're running helter-skelter on the surface of life, skimming along without any quali qualitative time for yourself, God, and other people. So I'm going after that one. Everything we do is in line with that vision statement. What I'm saying here this morning, and this brings me to the challenge, is that we all need that. A sense right, on paper. What is my mission and what is my vision? Our mission is our sense of our general purpose. Uh, what, what is in, in one, one sentence, the, the, the thing that got, the reason why I exist. And our vision statement is how we're going to carry that out. I'll give you mine. My mission statement I've had in place for about 20, 25 years. My vision uh, statement gets modified, and that's okay. As you grow and you learn new things, you, you modify it. But if you don't have it, you won't have any sense of direction. So here's Greg's mission statement. To glorify God by making as qualitative and as quantitative an impact for the kingdom of God as is humanly possible before I die. That's why I exist. I want to make as big a splash, as deep a splash as possible for the kingdom of God, to the glory of God before I die. My vision statement, here's how I want to carry that out, is using every means possible, I seek to incarnate and advance the love and truth of Jesus Christ to my family, to my small group, to my ministry associates, and to all other people as the Lord leads. And see, with that in mind, having, having that down, now I have a criteria by which I can say yes to some things and no to some things. You see, I've got, I've got, I'm going in a certain direction. Uh, with that in, in place, I now can get out the scissors and begin to cut. And what I find is, like barnacles, things get attached to it, you know? Things that aren't really, uh, you know, essential to my vision and mission statement, and they start, you know, collecting. And once in a while, you just got to do this pruning. You got to just cut them off. You got you to dump, you know, just dump it off. And, uh, uh, but with, without a vision and mission statement, we don't even know that there's, this, there's extraneous stuff being attached to us because we don't have a direction. So here's my challenge. I feel like a professor giving an assignment. We've got to be serious about discipleship, or otherwise it's never going to happen. I challenge you to swim upstream on this one. I don't have all the answers. You probably don't have all the answers yet either. But to ask the question, how can I simplify my life? How can I begin to opt out of this helter-skelter rat race? And the first step, here's the challenge, is to spend this week thinking about what your purpose is and what your, what your vision is for your life. Why has God brought you into this world Right here and right now, what's your mission? And what's your vision? Talk to friends about it. Talk to loved ones about it. Talk to God about it, obviously. And if you're not sure what it is, start writing it out. Because the process of writing can bring clarity to it. But I encourage you to spend this week. Uh, and some of you have already done this. Review it. Review it. And then as you get this down, now begin to ask the question, what belongs on my plate and what doesn't? And we'll be talking about how to get that extraneous stuff off your plate uh, in, in, in weeks to come. Would you close your eyes to pray? I want to say that um, <clears throat> I, I think if, if you're here at the second service, those of you who are going to be watching this is the second service, I apologize that I uh, had to show you a videotape, but I'm feeling my voice uh, completely going out. So we're just, that's why we made the decision. I'm making it right now, actually, uh, to show the video in the second service. I wanted to uh, apologize for that. Um, but I leave you with this question and this prayer. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to ask you to, at the end of the service, come up and to my right, your left, there'll be a person at this table who would love to explain to you uh, how to enter into a relationship with him. 
Here I'm talking about having a purpose in life and you don't know the purpose giver. He's got a purpose for your life, but it requires you having a relationship with him in order to find that out. So the first step for you is to come and find out how to enter into a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The prayer team will be, uh, come forward as soon as we're done. And if you have any need whatsoever you want to pray for, we encourage you to come forward and, and spend some time in prayer with them. But now I pray, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. God, we acknowledge that at least many of us, I believe most of us, have helter-skelter lives, water bugs skimming along the surface of a lake. Well, Lord, we repent of that. We've been sucked up into the matrix of this culture, and we want it to stop. And we suffer, and our loved ones suffer, and our relationship with you suffers, and the kingdom suffers because of it. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, we together pray in Jesus' name, that this week you will help us to uh, get clarity about our mission statement and about our vision statement. Speak to us this week. And let us know the single direction we're supposed to be going so we don't go in all other sorts of directions. So many things we could do, but Lord, we need you to talk to us about what we should do. And having done that, to let go, to let it go, to follow the example of Jesus and to say, sorry, I'm only human. I, I got to close up shop. Teach us how to have boundaries, how to have, be healthy and sane. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. The altar's open. You can come forward with prayer if you need to.